You're listening to the Desperation Podcast, a generation in desperate pursuit of God. www.desperationonline.com. I believe God is doing something significant to sort of rebirth the apostolic anointing in our generation. Do you all know what that means when I say apostolic anointing? What that means to me is that Christianity is not just something for me. It's not just for, for, from God to me where I stay in my little square. But instead, Christianity, the way that it was birthed in the book of Acts, is such that we get the Spirit of God in us. We have the experience that we had last night and this morning where we have thousands of people jam-packed in the room, counting the upper room, and the Spirit of God falls on us and something happens in us, and then we can't contain it in us. So God's calling us to take it from us and go out and infect the world around us. And so as long as we keep it just to us, then we've missed half the point of Christianity. Thank you. We've missed half the point of Christianity. So what I want to talk about just a little bit here is what I call epic Christianity. Epic Christianity. Let me pray here and then we're going to crank for about 45 minutes. We'll be done here before 5 o'clock so you have time to grab some dinner and rest a little bit before tonight. And I guarantee tonight will be all out, full throttle. It's going to be incredible. I just talked to Pastor David in the hallway and it's going to be an incredible time of committing to intimacy with God and committing to really bring all the things we've learned and the big dreams of Ron Luce last night and all the vision and excitement and going full bore and killing the devil, all those things, bring it down to the reality that if we don't have a quiet time with God, if we don't take that time with God, all the big dreams in the world don't mean anything. And so tonight's going to be an incredible time to really dive into that. So let's pray, and then we'll talk about epic Christianity for a few minutes. Living God, I love you so much. Father, I thank you for the call you've placed on this generation. Heavenly Father God, would you somehow use these words, use this time, the next few moments, oh God, to do something supernatural. Father, I believe you've drawn these people into this tent for such a time as this. Living God, I know the enemy has it out for our generation, for our communities, for our cities, for America, and you have something special in store. And so, Father God, would you cause your grace, your power, your anointing to be here in this room? And living God, would you even right now begin to birth vision for certain cities, for different communities, for different countries? Let it begin right now in Jesus' name. Amen. And I believe that, you know, I believe that even as we begin to talk here, some of you are going to begin to kind of feel like God's telling you Seattle or Maui. I keep hoping for that one. Or Alaska or China or Hollywood or Broadway or whatever it's going to be. And he's going to begin to birth that in your heart. Last night I was reading through a list of uh, different people that had impacted the world at different ages. And I thought about King Josiah was king at age eight. Joan of Arc was the leader of an incredible military uh, um, victory and this huge army at 18 years old. And I went through the rest of the list of the the Google guys and the Microsoft guys and the um, MySpace guys were all in their 20s when they launched into their businesses. And some of the greatest missionary movements and prayer movements of the, of the last few hundred years, really the last 2,000 years, began with people that were in their teens and their 20s. So as I begin to talk about church planting, and I begin to talk about getting a vision for a community or, or for a generation or whatever, don't think to yourself, this is just for 10 years. And I, I know that, that David said, maybe God's calling you to plant church in 10 years or in five years or in a month. Just because you think it's 10 years away doesn't mean that it's 10 years away. It might be closer than you think. I can tell you right now, I don't know if David mentioned it or not, but I can tell you right now, I've got over a million, I wish I had it, but the group that I work with has over a million dollars 
to plant churches right now. The greatest need we have are young people that have the passion and the courage and the guts and the anointing and the vision to plant. There are communities all across America that are tough, that are waiting for you. I think there are people whose eternity depends on you saying yes to the call of God or not. I think somewhere overseas there might be a community or a village or a city or a nation that's waiting for you to say yes or no. I think about Reinhard Bonnke and he's an incredible evangelist to Africa and there was a meeting sort of like this where one day God put in his heart the country, not just the country, the continent of Africa. He never let it go. That's what I call epic Christianity. I've noticed that most people live their life like a movie, right? They live their life, they live their life like a movie. So what are some different kinds of movies? I think of the action-adventure movie, right? So my, my favorite movie of all time was, and it was the best movie ever made, by the way, that was Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. And I'm a major Indiana Jones nut. My dog is named Indiana. My son's named Harrison. That's embarrassing right there. And so... And, and, I, and my, one, one, actually, one of my friends was just on a uh, vacation to Hawaii in, uh, uh, where is, does YWAM have their base in Hawaii? Kona. And they were at this little bed and breakfast, and there's this waterfall back behind their, their hotel, and the people that stay at the hotel can, can swim in the waterfall. And they were, they were there, and they saw all these like, old rusted out cars in the waterfall, and like, all these props everywhere. And they went to the hotel and said, what's happening back? This is like two weeks ago. What's happening back in the lake behind the hotel? And they said, well, we can't tell you, but there's a movie being filmed there next week, which is right now. So this is an anointed time here in Colorado Springs and in Hawaii. And uh, so I, we found out that actually Indiana Jones Part 4 is being filmed right now in Hawaii. And I'm telling you, 65 years old, but don't mess with Harrison Ford. So you have the action-adventure movies. You have the Chuck Norris's and the Indiana Jones. And some people live their life like a constant action-adventure flick. And I have some friends that they're, they're adrenaline junkies. They're always moving, going. They have to always be doing something. They live, they live their life like an action-adventure movie. Then, of course, you have the drama, right? There are some people that live their life like a drama. I mean, everything is like... Uh, drama, right? They walk in the room, in the classroom, or into the church, or whatever, and it's like, their life is a drama, and so it's always about this and that, and what he said and she said, and their life is constantly on drama. And you all can think of drama queens and drama kings in your, in your church, or on your staff, or in your school, and so some people live their life like a constant drama. I think of some of the movies that are dramas, like the movie Crash, or one of my favorites was, was one called Shawshank Redemption, and the whole soundtrack is this emotional pull where you're bawling and then you're it's like you get spent just watching the movie then of course you have the comedy right some guys live their life like a comedy I think of the movie uh, or all the the Will Ferrell movies are all kind of hilarious and then of course you had Napoleon Dynamite and these great hilarious comedies and there's some guys that live their lives constantly they have to be funny and so everything's kind of all a joke and it's like how are you doing you know and it's like the Tommy Boy thing or whatever all the time their life is a constant comedy then you have of course the romance Right? So I think of movies like The Notebook, Sleepless in Seattle. It's the kind of movie that, that, that actually all the guys love, but they say they hate. And so, you know, girls will go to the romance, the romantic comedy, and then sometimes the guys will go with them, and they're sitting there, and they're like, yeah, I guess we'll go to The Notebook. I don't know. I kind of want to see Terminator, but we'll sit here. And then he's watching The Notebook, and you're like, trying to hide the tear. That's got something in my eye. I don't know what it is. And there's some people, their life is always about what's happening in their love life and this romance and this idealism. But then you have the one kind of movie that beats everything else. It's the movie that brings all the rest of them together. It brings together romance and comedy and action and drama. It is what? The epic, right? So what are some of the epics? 
The epics are Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Braveheart. You see, an epic, what it does, when you leave another movie, you might think about it for a while. A comedy makes you laugh for a few moments. A romance makes you kind of have the feelings inside for a while. The drama makes you cry and, and all those different things. The action-adventure movie makes you just say, or you go home and start boxing or whatever. But the epic stays with you. There's something about an epic when you walk out of the movie theater and you go home, there's something gnawing at the inside of you. And it's not just the fact that you just saw a three-foot hobbit man go defeat this deal and, and win, win the safety of Middle Earth. Or it's not the fact that you just saw the ragtag rebel alliance defeat the imperial forces. But instead, the reason why an epic sits inside of us for a while is because there's a story deeper in the epic that reflects the story of God. Does that make sense? You see, an epic always has certain things in common. An epic always has kind of the nameless, faceless, uh, unsuspecting hero, right? There's this little dribble man sitting in the Shire somewhere in Middle Earth that no one ever suspects could do anything. He's like this big, and all of a sudden that guy can defeat Middle Earth. You had this guy who's a whiny guy on the island of Tatooine, and he's there kind of, I don't want to go fight Darth Vader. And he becomes the guy who leads the entire force to go and win uh, safety for all the universe or whatever it is. And so there's this thing about an epic that burns inside of us. When you leave after the popcorn's gone and the makeup comes off, there's something about you that says, you know what, I resonate with that. The reason you resonate with it is because that's the call that God has on the church in our generation. It's a pretty big call. It's an epic call. So we're talking about epic Christianity. I think it's important because an epic reflects God's personality. Epic Christianity reflects God's personality. Epic Christianity reflects God's character. You see, I don't think God's calling us to a Christianity that's just always romantic or that's super dramatic. I don't think he's calling us to a Christianity that's just an action-adventure thing where it's always just rah, rah, rah. But I think God's calling us to a Christianity that impacts and affects every area of our lives and every area of the communities and culture around us. That's epic Christianity. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of God are being transformed. Everyone say transformed. Transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit of God. That's amazing to me. You see, epic Christianity doesn't just change me. Epic Christianity transforms me so I can transform others. Epic Christianity, you see, God transforms me so I can transform my school, so I can transform my family, so I can transform my community, so I can transform the culture around me. That's what epic Christianity does. Jesus said, when he, when he ascended from planet, he's floating up in the air, he's like, Ooh, he's floating up, he's looking down, he said, now go and be my disciples, right? Isn't that what he said? Basically, he said, listen, you're my body now. He said, I'm leaving planet Earth. I can't touch any more lepers and heal them. I can't hold any more homeless people and love them. I can't reach out and teach the religious people the truth. I can't rescue the ones who are dying and hurting. I can't do it. I'm leaving my body. He's leaving planet Earth. So now you become my body. That's pretty cool. You become my hands. You become my feet. You become my eyeballs. You become my mouthpiece. You become my ears. You become my heart. You become me. That's why the church is called the body of Christ because we fulfill what Jesus Christ did during his 33 years, during his three years in particular. We're the ones now that carry the torch to do it after he's gone. We're the body of Christ. But you see, when the body begins to atrophy, that word atrophy, you know what it means? It actually means to stop working, to sort of begin to die on itself. When the body begins to atrophy, 
then the parts of the body, when, when a certain part of the body atrophies, like, there, there's this one, my, my son likes to read the Guinness Book of World Records, and he was, he's eight years old, Harrison, and he's reading through the Guinness Book of World, world Records, and he called me to his room, he's like, Dad, look at this, it's so gross! And I was like, oh my, what is that? So I walk up, and he's got this picture of this guy in the middle of India, and he's been holding his hand up in the air for 40 years. So his hand, his arm is completely atrophied. It's shrunken down. His fingers have grown together with webs between them. They don't work anymore. His nails were long and curling. And his arm was virtually useless. It had atrophied because he held it in this one particular position and never moved it. I was watching a TV show on the Learning Channel, which they have all kinds of creeped out shows, but there's this one, and it's called Big Medicine. It's about these huge people, and the, the, the doctor's trying to help them to lose weight and that kind of thing. And what happens is, because they can't move out of their chair, their legs begin to atrophy. Their muscles don't work anymore. When I was in high school, I got uh, hepatitis when I was on missions in the Philippines. And I came back, and it was my senior year in high school, and I, I was a star athlete, like you can tell. Just kidding. I was special teams on football, and they call special teams special for a reason. So I was very special. And, but anyway, I didn't get to play football, so I was like bedridden. So I'm like already scrawny. So I was like, you could barely see me on the bed. I was there, sort of all skin and bones, and I was bedridden for three months. After that, I tried to walk and move, and it was hard for me. I had to relearn how to walk. My muscles had to relearn how to use themselves. The same thing is true in the body of Christ. If we don't use us as the body of Christ for the purpose that God intended, we begin to die. We don't know it. We can have great meetings and we can jump up and down and we can listen to praise and worship and we can do all those things, but if we don't use ourselves for the purpose that God intended us to be used for, we begin to atrophy and many times we don't even know it. And so slowly we become irrelevant to the world around us. Slowly we lose our saltiness. Slowly we lose the power of God in us and we wake up one day and the culture around us is shaping us instead of us shaping the culture around us epic Christianity. God's calling us to be his body. He's calling us to be him. I think God wants to kind of set this generation free. Now you're here at Desperation, I think, because you're the kind of person who's already living an epic Christian life. I'm going to assume that, that you've made some decisions over the past 24 and 48 hours to live an epic Christian life, or you came here already going for it. I mean, you're strong and you're passionate and you're reading the word of God and you're on track and you're an epic Christian, but I want to tell you the world around us looks into Christianity and they often see a Christianity that they don't want anything to do with. They often see Christianity and say, you know what, I'm not sure that I can do that. Well, God is calling the church to be free. God's calling our generation to be free. Anybody here ever been to a zoo before? You've all been to a zoo, right? So I've got four kids, eight, six, four, and two. Wow, I have a great wife. And so those four kids wanted to go to the zoo, and so I took them to the Colorado Springs Zoo. Anybody here from Colorado Springs? Some of you from Colorado Springs? Okay, you've been to the Colorado Springs Zoo? What's crazy about the Colorado Springs Zoo is it's built on the side of a stinking mountain. All right, so you have like, it's an incredible zoo, but if you want to go from here to there, you have to put on like crampons and get a belay system and you have to climb the mountain pretty much to go see the elephants. And so it's like all uphill every way in this, in this particular zoo. You don't really have to do that, but it's kind of like tall. So anyway, we have these strollers and oxygen bottles and all kinds, you know, when you have little kids, you have all kinds of contraptions. I don't know what they do, but all kinds of things that you have to wear and all that with these little kids and we're going to see all these different animals and I mean, I'm sweating. I lost like 20 pounds just at the zoo and then we're, we're exiting the zoo and my son Harrison is just now kind of beginning to learn how to read, and so um, there's a sign as we're exiting, and it, it was a sign for one particular animal display that I didn't want to go to because it was like an incline to get there. You have to go like this to get to the one display up there, and so I didn't want to go there, and it was the, the, um, the exhibit for the birds of prey. And so um, my son saw the sign there and said, Dad, what are birds of prey? 
And I, I wanted to say they're, they're birds that pray a lot, but, I, but it's like the desperation birds. But instead I said, I said, well, they're birds. I said, you wouldn't be interested in that at all. It's not fun. It's not interesting, especially as an eight-year-old boy. They're just animal. They're birds that eat other animals. Well, he's like, I'm going, you know? And so, uh, so anyway, we took this trek up the Everest, basically, to get to this top of the mountain. And so we get up there, and we're all vomiting and sweating, and we get to the top, and not really. And we're there, and we see this, this display for this bird called the condor. Ever, ever heard of a condor? The condor is like a 3,000-foot wingspan, big, like 10 feet or 20 or something, but large, the largest ever in a bird. And so it's there. And, uh, and it's this huge condor, and we saw the condor, and we're looking at it, and it's like an ugly vulture thing. And my son is looking at a different uh, cage over to the side. He says, Dad, come over here, look at this. I walked over, and I said, what? He said, look at him, do you see him in the corner? And this cage was maybe 12 foot tall by 15 foot wide, and there's like a piece of a log in the corner, and I didn't see anything. He said, come on, Dad, he's over in the corner by the log, look at him. I see his head sticking up behind the log. I saw a little white-capped head back behind the log. And I realized what it was. It was the bald eagle right there. I looked at Harrison, and Harrison looked at me, and we saw this eagle kind of perch up on the log, and he crawled his way up and looked at, he was kind of just sitting there on the log. Here's the bald eagle, the symbol of our freedom and hope and life and liberty of America. And he's there in this cage, and I looked at Harrison, and I said, Harrison, what do you think that bird's thinking right now? He says, Dad, I think that bird wants to fly. I mean, I wanted so badly to reach over, to burst that cage open, to throw it open, to grab that bird and let it go and say, fly, bird, fly. But I thought to myself, that's exactly what God wants to do in our generation. Our generation of church, our generation of the body of Christ, to a large degree, the enemy has taken us and has thrown us in a small cage and said, you know what, you can't do it. Just hide behind the four walls of the church. Hide as much as you can. Hope that you can make it through life as a Christian and make it through your marriage pure and that kind of a thing. And so we'll just lock you back here and we'll close the gate and hide from the world and don't do anything. Just try to barely make it through life. And God's saying, no, I've called you to have life and life in the full. God is saying, listen, the enemy is defeated and you're the ones. You're the agents of change. You're my body. You're my hands. You're my feet. God's calling us to reach over, to unlock that cage, throw it open, get the bird called the church, and set it free in Jesus' name. And you're the ones that can go back home and do it. That's pretty cool. But the truth is, too much of the church has forgotten its purpose. Remember, we're called to reflect the heart of God. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. Everyone say Salt. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty? It's like a pun. How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown down and trampled by men. In other words, if the church loses its purpose, it's not good for anything. Maybe we've been so afraid of a secular society that we've turned our back on the society around us. Did you know right now America is more spiritual than ever? It's more spiritual than ever. In a recent survey, almost 100% of high school students said they believe in a God. Now, they've rejected, for a, to a large degree, Christianity. But many say they believe in a God. Americans are more inquisitive than ever. You know this. Your friends are asking questions about God and spirituality, what's happening. I mean, everybody watches Lost, right? And what's Lost about? Some weird spiritual thing, and everyone wants to watch this thing, and they're guessing what it is, and how does it work? They're glued to their TV sets, wondering, there's got to be something else out there. 
So many horror movies are, such a, are, are a huge deal because there's a sense of a supernatural thing of this, the other side and they want to figure out what it is and that's the reason that our generation is looking, I think, desperately for the call of God in our lives. There's a book out called The Secret. The Secret is about this kind of positive mental attitude way to God and so there are millions of people reading the thing because they're looking for spirituality. I think they're looking for God and we're the ones who, are, who should be bringing them to them. We're not, we're not at risk of becoming a godless country, I don't think. We are at risk of becoming a country with many gods. Do you hear that? We're not at risk of becoming a godless country, but we're at risk of becoming a country with many gods. Our country is not rejecting spirituality. It's rejecting, to a large degree, Christianity. So what happens when we lose our saltiness? What happens when we forget why we're here? A few things. First of all, we make it wrong to ask questions. Okay? And all of you youth leaders, this is especially for you. We make it wrong to ask questions. I've heard it said that America's best, best atheists are children of the church. Why? Because sometimes as youth leaders, when a youth comes to us and says, hey, I don't understand exactly how Genesis works. Or I understand how we're the only way to God. It doesn't make sense to me. Or uh, a, a young person comes to us and asks us a question, and we just say, you just got to believe it, and that's all. And we don't have any way to defend our faith. We don't understand our own apologetics. We, 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 we kind of make it wrong to ask questions. And I think as a church, we make it okay to ask questions and open the conversation and open the dialogue. I think that's when our friends say, now I can begin to talk about Christianity a little bit. Isn't that true? But when we're just dogmatic and say, listen, I know the only way, and this is it, and that's all there is to it, and la, 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 it doesn't do any good. But as Christians, if we say, listen, I want to hear what you're thinking and what you're saying, and I want to dialogue with you and begin a conversation, and I want to reflect Christ to you, suddenly, I think the gospel can be spread in an incredible way. Number two, we equate being a good Christian with being a good citizen. In other words, if you are, specifically, this particular kind of persuasion in your politics, then you're a Christian. But if you're not, you're not a Christian. And we begin to put labels on Christianity. Jesus never did that. Jesus said, I'm a Christian. Here's what I am. And so I think as the body of Christ, we've got to begin to call Christianity, Christianity, and not everything else. We've equated being, we, we, we basically equated going to church, listening to Chris Tomlin, and having a, a daily devotion at Starbucks, the measure of our success as a Christian. We've said, here are the things that mean you're a Christian, instead of saying, listen, I want to be a genuine, authentic, real Christian. And when the world sees that, they're attracted to it. Okay, number three. This is a big one for me, and I'm the, I'm the big production guy at New Life Church. I, I'm the guy who does all the big lights and sound, and I do a, a huge Easter production and a big Christmas production, so I love all the bells and whistles. When I was youth pastor, when I first came in, we didn't have any kind of lights or sound, and it was, it was a little bit plain, and so I came in, and I was like, well, I want moving lights, and I want smoke, and all kinds of things. So saying this is a big deal for me, but I think that we tend to put a higher value on entertainment than on powerful encounters with God. Isn't that true? I mean, I'm talking about the church at large, not you guys, but this is what we're up against. Okay? Number four. Sometimes we become an organization instead of an organism. We become an organization instead of an organism. Listen, when, the, when, when our friends out there look at us and they say, listen, all you guys are is just kind of the, you're a status quo organization. You're the organized church. I don't want anything to do with that. They reject us. But when they see us as a moving, moving, living, breathing, compassionate, loving, loving the hurting and finding the people that need Christ, when we, if we become that kind of church, suddenly they say, I want to be part of that. And so we see a movement right now in America where young people are saying, I want to go and help the homeless and, and, and help the orphans and, and love on AIDS babies and be Jesus Christ to the world. Listen, everyone, the day that we become the church, his hands and his feet and his eyes and his heart, and we die to ourselves and say, God, it's not about me, it's all about you, then something powerful begins to happen. That's, Christi that's epic Christianity. 
It'll freak the world out. Because the truth is the world has their labels for us. Isn't that true? If we were to go out and interview 25 or 30 people, just random people, and say, tell us the definition of what a Christian looks like, you and I would say, oh, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not that person. What's the best way to change their mind? That's right. See, one option is stand on the street corner with a bullhorn and some tracks and just say, I am a good person and I love the hurting. Right? And you're going to hell. <laughs> or we can be the church that says, you know what, I'm going to love the hurting. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to be an honest worker. I'm going to be on time. I'm going to be the best student I can. I'm going to love the people that are unlovely. I'm going to help the ones that nobody else wants to help. Listen, the gospel is pretty plain and simple. Jesus Christ, he bled love. When the church does that, man, we're going to freak out the world. It's epic Christianity. Is this, is this all right right here? Is this, is this good stuff? Oh, it's okay? Now, we're going to get to the church planting thing in just a minute here, so hang on. Okay, number five. We lose our conviction in favor of compromise. We lose our conviction in favor of compromise. I once heard a, a church, a young church planter who planted a kind of a cool hip church and all that kind of thing. He planted a church and he told me, you know, John, it's really cool because a person can come to our church and hang out for an hour and leave and never know they were in church. And I was like, so why don't you open a Starbucks? You know, why are you trying to do a church for crying out loud? There comes a point where you, have to, you want to be relevant and all that, but you've also got to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus loved compassionately, but he also had power. And he wasn't afraid to say the words that changed people's lives. Number six, we become imitators instead of innovators. Don't you hate it when you just see like all the Christian t-shirts that are like the Pepsi t-shirt that says Jesus but in the Pepsi symbol? You think to yourself, come on, think about something creative there. Or you hear a worship song and you know you've heard it before somewhere and it's like, is that... Did I hear that in a different band and they're just putting different words to the same music? Or I think God's calling us to be innovators. In fact, I think some of you in this room, God's calling to write novels that'll win a Pulitzer Prize. Some of you, God's calling to be an actor or an actress that will one day stand on a platform with an Oscar in your hand and say, this goes to the glory of the Lord of the universe. Come on, I'd love that. One of you just might win a Tony someday for a, a Broadway play that defies the odds and glorifies God, and, and has a story of redemption, and a story of love, and somehow changes the world. One of you may one day stand with a Nobel Peace Prize in your hand for discovering the cure to cancer, or the cure to AIDS, and say, this is the compassionate love of God for our generation. This is the arms, and hands, and feet of God for millions of people in Africa, or millions of people in Asia. That would be amazing. But we have to decide to be innovators, and not just imitators. Number seven, we reject the marginalized in favor. And this is especially for you youth leaders and pastors and people like that, but we reject the marginalized. In other words, the hurting, the lonely, the smelly, the dirty, the rebellious, the, the ones that sit in the back of the youth meeting. And they were always my favorite when I was a youth pastor, you know? I had this one guy that I got to tell you the story. And when I was first, I was like a super young youth pastor, all excited, you know, we're going to talk about Jesus. And, and I, I, I got all these like just great kids that were like didn't want to be in church and so they came to the youth group and they sat in the back and they kind of like give you the bird during the service and all kinds of other, other things and, and so they would scare me and but anyway there's one guy in particular and he had like this shirt on with the devil on it and he was like back there pentagram he was like Rah! and um and he had like a tackle box in his face and all that sort of thing and and uh, but he was cool I mean he was just he was like cool but but he didn't want to be there and so God connected my heart to his heart and I thought I'm gonna love this guy and I'm going to pour myself into him. And I'm going to make him 
uh, I'm going I'm to make him uh, one of my f- kind of favorites. And so we started going snowboarding together and skateboarding. And I, would, I wouldn't tell him, you can't do this and you should do this and you shouldn't do that. But instead, I just loved him. I loved him. And now he has, as he went on from there, he became one of the greatest prayer leaders in our youth group for the next five years. He led a prayer journey into the most unreached part of Nepal where no one's been led in for like 50 years and he led a group into there and he had incredible stories of what the power of God did in spiritual warfare in Nepal because someone was willing to say, you know what, I'm going to favor the marginalized instead of just going for the safe Christian hip. That's what I call it, right? So take that for what it's worth, okay? So that's what we're up against, but let me tell you right now, there's hope. Whenever the enemy comes in like a flood, the Bible says God raises up a standard against it. Whenever the enemy comes in and says you can't have, uh, whenever the enemy comes in and tries to destroy a generation, God raises up an, a remnant that comes together. And I think desperation is part of that. I think God's raising up young people right now that will say, you know what, I'm going to stand up against the enemy, against all these forces that are coming in just like that. And I'm going to be the epic Christian that God's calling me to be. I think of uh, Gideon's 1%. I love preaching this. Right? Gideon was there, and, and the Bible says that there were 150,000 Midianites gathered together in the valley floor, and they had pillaged all of Israel. They were raping the women, they were stealing the crops, they were burning buildings. These guys were like, they were like the pirates of the Caribbean in the middle of the valley there. They're like, they're doing their thing, and they scared the Israelites up into the valley. The Bible says that the, the, that the people of Israel were hiding in caves, and they were blocking themselves out, and they were the, there was one guy named Gideon who was supposed to be one of the leaders, but he was afraid, and the Bible says he was threshing wheat in the wine press, and the wine press is like, it's down in the ground, we can squash grapes and, and so it's, it's, it's away from the wind and when you thresh wheat you're supposed to be up on a hilltop where everyone can see you and you thresh the wheat so the chaff blows away and the wheat falls to the ground that's how you thresh wheat but he was so afraid of the Midianites down below that he found himself hiding in a wine press and he's down there with all the grapes trying to thresh this grain and scared to death and all of a sudden an angel scares him even worse an angel's like no and he's like ah he turns around and the angel's there and the angel says you are a mighty man of valor and Gideon's like who? And God calls Gideon. The next thing Gideon does, he begins to pray. God says, okay, Gideon, I'm going to have you defeat them. And he's like, I, 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 what? I'm going to have you get an army to defeat the Midianites. So Gideon begins to pray. And he's praying and he's praying and he's praying. And God says to Gideon, you have too many men, right? Actually, first Gideon goes and he kind of rallies the troops. And the Bible says that 30,000 men came and joined Gideon and said, we'll go and we'll fight the Midianites. And they were sharpening their swords and getting their axes. And you have some burly guys and all that. So he has these men and he's ready to fight the Midianites. There were 150,000 Midianites and 30,000 Israelites. So Gideon knew the odds were against him, right? I mean, those are bad odds, 30,000 to 150,000. That's, that's not a good situation, though. So anyway, Gideon's praying and seeking God and all that kind of thing. And then suddenly he feels the Spirit of God say, you have too many men, so tell all the ones that are afraid to go home. If you have family or if you're afraid, go home. And the Bible says that Gideon stood on a rock and he watched as 20,000 people walked by. 10,000 left. 10,000 left. So now he's praying. He's like, okay, God, I'm not sure if I heard you right, but I have 10,000 now against 150,000 Midianites. The odds are even worse now than they were before. So what do I do? And then God says to Gideon, you have too many men. So he does it again, and the next time he has him kneel down, and there's a, a stream of water going by, and he has him drink from the, from the brook, and you all know this story. And so some of the guys go down like a dog, and they just kind of begin to lap like that. Other ones reach down with their hands and do this thing. And God says, the guys that are like this, the guys that are watching and alert, the guys that are obsessed with the vision, the guys that are passionate about what they're doing, those are the guys to keep. And Gideon's like, yeah, but it's only 300 guys. And God says, perfect. 
That's my 1%. There are plenty of people in this generation that will say, I'll serve God. There are plenty of people that will say, you know what, I'll do whatever God wants me to do. But I think there's only about 1% of Christians that will say, I'll carry the standard. I'll pray the dangerous prayers. I'll live that kind of life. I'll abandon my life. I'll give myself away. I want to spend my life for the cause of Christ. God, empty me of me and put you into me. That's the 1%. That's the epic Christianity I'm talking about. Okay, let me give you the marks of epic Christianity. I'm going to take this for about 20 minutes and we're done. The marks of epic Christianity. Number one, these guys and gals are engaged in the conversation of their culture. They're engaged in the conversation. You see, Christ's ministry was based on asking questions. So they're the ones that, they do ask questions and they encourage their people that are around them to ask questions about God and about heaven and hell and Christianity. You'd be surprised if you would open up a conversation with some of your unchurched friends, you'd be amazed at the questions they have. And if you'll encourage them to ask them and don't make them feel stupid for saying, I don't get this or I don't understand that or, but, but how does this work? But what about evolution? But what about that? But what about other religions? And how does this work? And if you'll say, okay, let's talk about it. Let's research it. Let's study it. Let's look at the Bible together. When you begin to open the conversation, you'll be amazed at how suddenly people say, I'm open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've seen it happen over and over and over and over again. You see, epic Christians engage in the conversation with people around them. You see it in Acts 17 with Paul. He walked into the city and all of a sudden he said, in the, in, in the city of Athens, he related to their culture, he found out where they were, and he brought them into the conversation. He entered into their, into their world. And he said, you have the God here, the, the idol to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who the unknown God actually really is. The unknown God is a person, the God-man, the Savior of the world, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ. He met them where they were. He let them ask their questions. Bam, he got them. Okay? Jeremiah 20, verse 9 says, But if I say I will not make mention of him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. You see, you've got to talk about the thing that's inside of you. Number two, they are authentic. Everyone say authentic. They're authentic. They're not always what you'd expect. You see, as a Christian, you don't have to put on a facade or a mask or anything like that. You can be real. You can be yourself. You can let yourself, let Christ in you shine out of you. The world is looking for real Christians. The world wants to see the real us. In fact, the the world around us has been so disillusioned sometimes by Christianity, by leaders who say one thing and do another, by people who say one thing and do another, by Christians who say they're one thing and they live another life. They've become disillusioned. But if we can say, listen, here's who I am. I'm going to be real. I'm going to be genuine. I'm going to be authentic. Let the world see the real us. I always think about Thomas when it comes to this. Thomas and Peter, these guys were class A boneheads. I mean, these guys were, they were the real deal though. Peter was like always putting his foot in his mouth and he'd get mad at somebody and scream at him and say, I'll never deny you. I deny Christ. I don't know who he is. And then I, I mean, it's like, I, I, Peter, it was like, he was like this guy that was schizophrenic and, and double-minded, but he, at the end of the day, he loved God, but he was the real deal. Then you have Thomas. Do you remember the upper room? Or this is after Christ rose from the dead. And imagine the 12 disciples are in the room and they're crying and they're bawling and Jesus is dead and he said he would rise again. I don't know. So they're all going through this major deal and all of a sudden through the walls. It's like, here comes Jesus. Now imagine that scene. Now we've seen Star Wars and all those things. We'd probably be like, George Lucas probably behind that whole thing right there. But 2,000 years ago, all of a sudden the guy walks through a wall into the room and there he is. 
I'd be falling on my feet and bawling and saying I worship you. But Thomas was the real deal. Thomas stood back and said, I know that Peter is taking it here and John and James and Thaddeus and all these guys, but I just, I don't buy it. I got to tell you the truth, I don't buy it. You look like Jesus. You sound like Jesus. Could be some creepy twin thing going on. I don't, I don't know if it's really Jesus. So show me your hands. Show me your feet. Show me your side. Is it really you? And did Jesus say, no, you should just believe me. Did Jesus push him away and reject him for that? No. He embraced him. He said, I know you, Thomas. It takes you a million years to even come around. Here's my hand. Here's my feet. Here's my side. Okay. There he said, I can imagine Thomas going, I'm sorry. I can't believe I But he was the real deal. He's authentic. I think the world is looking for us to be the real deal. To say it like it is. They're, com- they're passionate. Number three, they're passionate. They don't accept the status quo. I love that. The movie Braveheart's one of my favorite epics of all time. And there's that, there's that uh, one scene in uh, Braveheart where Mel Gibson is uh, down there. And actually, it was kind of funny. He came to our church a few years ago. Mel Gibson did to do it to promote the passion of the Christ. And so I, I've always been a big Braveheart fan. So I was expecting to see, you know, William Wallace and all that. And so I was there to host him for the day like Mel Gibson. I was like excited and all that. And so... So he came to the church and this huge stretch limo pulled up in front of the church and they opened the doors and I'm there all ready to go. To, I'm like all th- very Mel Gibson-y and, and they open the door up and Mel Gibson gets out and, he, and I expected this huge giant of a man. It's like, I'm William Wallace, you know? And, and he's like, I'm William Wallace. It's like this little guy and all of a sudden pops out of this limo and I'm like, Mel Gibson, how are you? You know, kind of thing. But he's an amazing guy, right? Mel Gibson. So here he is in the prison. Do you remember that one scene in Braveheart? It was the day before he was to be executed. And he was down in this prison cell and, and, and the next day they were going to put him on the stretcher and, and basically just kill him for what he had done to try to liberate Scotland there. And so he was there and the, the princess comes down into the cave, right? Into the, the, the prison cell. And she gets in there and she's talking to him and there's this incredible romantic scene and, and she pulls out this poison and she says, here, take this. It'll go faster tomorrow. Take this and you'll die faster. What does he say? Ah, yes. All men die. But only a few men ever really live. All men die, but only a few men ever really live. I don't know about you, but I'm determined to be one of those people in Christianity who really lives. You see, I think so many Christians, they kind of go through the motions of Christianity and they have this kind of facade of Christianity and all the stuff of Christianity, but, but somehow they never live because they haven't prayed those what I call dangerous prayers and put their life out there and said, God, I'll die to myself and I'll take up the call. I'll do whatever you call me to do. You see, I think God's looking for a generation who's willing to really, really live. There's a story that, I've, that I told a few weeks ago to some pastors, and I was up in Alaska a, a while back with, with my family, my father-in-law, actually, on a little fishing boat. And I love to fish and that sort of thing, and so we were there um, uh, in this fishing boat. Actually, let me go back and tell you a different story first. Anybody here ever been to SeaWorld before? Ever been to SeaWorld? Okay. Well, I was at SeaWorld with my wife when we first got married, and, and we went there, and, and we didn't have any kids yet, so I was all excited about SeaWorld. We went on the roller coasters, and we, we pet the manta rays back before manta rays were dangerous. And so, pet the manta rays and stingrays, and we, we, we like fed the fish, and then we saw the seal with a balloon or ball, or did that whole thing. But there's one thing at SeaWorld better than all the rest. There's one particular display that's better than anything else. What is it? Shamu. 
That's right, Shamu, the killer whale. And so we went to Shamu's thing and it had steps just like this. And we sat there and I had my popcorn and my pop and we were waiting for Shamu. And they had like this curtain type thing and this huge tank. And the music was playing this big epic music. Dun, 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 dun. So all of a sudden the, 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 the announcer over the, the loudspeaker says, And now the world's most famous killer whale, Shamu. And the curtain opens. And I mean, everyone's like screaming and crying and Shamu. And all of a sudden Shamu comes out there and he's doing all kinds of tricks and spins and the music was swelling and it was an incredible thing. And they had like these, these sticks they would lay out there and he would jump over that and everyone's clapping and screaming. There's this guy in a black leotard type thing and he's jumping off the edge of the nose of this fish. And it was an incredible thing. I don't think they're a fish. They're actually a mammal, but figure that out. So anyway, the Shamu was there and it, it was feeding 